This audio lecture is based entirely upon the case books Liberty, Equality, and Due Process, Cases, Controversies, and Contexts in Constitutional Law, and First Amendment, Cases, Controversies, and Contexts by Ruth Ann Robson. The case books are published by Cali E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0. That means that the author has allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit. Don't use the material for commercial purposes and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to Ruthann for writing these books and providing them to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution Lectures. In this section, we'll be discussing the First Amendment. The text of the First Amendment is as follows. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government from redress of grievances. The religion clauses. The religion clauses are two separate but intertwined clauses. First, the text forbids Congress making laws respecting an establishment of religion. The Establishment Clause, more properly called an Anti-Establishment Clause, or Dis-Establishment Clause, but routinely called the Establishment Clause, means at its most basic level that there cannot be a government religion. This is distinct from many other nations in which there is a national religion, including Great Britain's Church of England. More specific meanings of what an establishment of religion might mean have been the subject of numerous cases and controversies. Most vexing have been government support for religious education, and for government displays of religiosity. Second, the text forbids Congress making laws that would prohibit the free exercise of religion. This freedom of religion clause means, at its most basic level, that government cannot outlaw a religion. 
Again, the history of England is instructive, including criminal trials for heresy. And again, the more specific meanings of prohibiting and free exercise have been the subject of numerous cases and controversies. The extent to which the government must accommodate religious beliefs and practices has been the most contentious. The Free Speech Clause The First Amendment's Freedom of Speech Clause is the primary means of protecting expression. It is the clause that most people think of when they think of the First Amendment and it occupies a central place in First Amendment doctrine and theory. Indeed, other First Amendment rights are often grounded in the free speech clause. The press clause. The text or of the press language, immediately after the prohibition of the abridgment of freedom of speech, might seem to guarantee freedom of the press as a separate right. Doctrinally, the free press clause is often coextensive with the free speech clause. The assembly clause. The assembly clause has not been the source of rights or doctrinal explication. Some of the framers imagined the clause to be superfluous, and its interpretation has proven this to be true. The Petition Clause Like the Assembly Clause, the Petition Clause has not been the source of robust rights under the First Amendment. However, in one Supreme Court case, the Court held that the Petition Clause and the Speech Clause are not necessarily coextensive. In that case, a public employee brought a First Amendment claim that he had been terminated in retaliation for filing a grievance, i.e. a petition. The court held, however, that the petition clause should be interpreted in this case as coextensive with the free speech clause doctrine, which would require the employee to be speaking about a matter of public concern. Association, the missing clause. Note that the text of the First Amendment does not contain the word association, although it is often thought to include it. This right, grounded in the speech clause, is often said to begin with the court's decision in NAACP versus Alabama in 1958. In addition to the right to anonymity in belonging to an organization, as in the NAACP case, other associational First Amendment rights include the ability of organizations to determine their membership in light of anti-discrimination laws. International Perspectives The rights encompassed in the United States Constitution's First Amendment 
are generally included in human rights documents and other national constitutions. The prohibition of government religion, as mentioned above, is less universal. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights provides in Article 18, everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This right includes freedom to change his religion or belief and freedom either alone or in community with others and in public or private to manifest his religion or belief in teaching, practice, worship, and observance. Article 19 states, Everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers. Article 20 states, Everyone has the right to freedom of peaceful assembly and association. No one may be compelled to belong to an association. The International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights provides in Article 18, Everyone shall have the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This right shall include freedom to have or to adopt a religion or belief of his choice, and freedom either individually or in community with others, and in public or private, to manifest his religion or belief in worship, observance, practice, and teaching. No one shall be subject to coercion, which would impair his freedom to have or to adopt a religion or belief of his choice. Article 19 states, Everyone shall have the right to hold opinions without interference. Everyone shall have the right to freedom of expression. This right shall include freedom to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas of all kinds, regardless of frontiers, either orally, in writing, or in print, in the form of art, or through any other media of his choice. Article 20 states, Any advocacy of national, racial, or religious hatred that constitutes incitement to discrimination, hostility, or violence shall be prohibited by law. Article 21 states, The right of peaceful assembly shall be recognized. No restrictions may be placed on the exercise of this right other than those imposed in conformity with the law and which are necessary in a democratic society in the interests of national security or public safety, public order, the protection of public health or morals, or the protection of the rights and freedoms of others. Article 22 states, Everyone shall have the right to freedom of association with others, including the right to form and join trade unions for the protection 
of his interests. Note the qualifications and balancing in the ICCPR and the mandate for the prohibition of hate speech. When the United States adopted the ICCPR in 1992, it specifically included a reservation regarding Article 20, noting that Article 20 does not authorize or require legislation or other action by the United States that would restrict the right of free speech and association protected by the Constitution and laws of the United States. State Action and Incorporation Against the States The United States Constitution has two important features that are vital in the consideration of its First Amendment. First, there is the requirement of state action, as seen by the opening words of the text, Congress shall make no law. Like other constitutional protections, with the notable exception of the 13th Amendment, the First Amendment is a guarantee against infringement by the government rather than private actors. The First Amendment is notable, however, in that people often invoke it against when they are silenced by criticism or even interrupted on a talk show. Second, there is the question of federalism. Importantly, while the First Amendment constrains only government, it constrains all governments. Although the text begins with, Congress shall make no law, the provisions of the First Amendment have been applied to the states, and thus their subdivisions, through the process of selective incorporation under the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause. The First Amendment's Speech Clause is considered the first of the rights in the Bill of Rights to be incorporated against the states. In Near versus Minnesota, the court discussed the Press Clause and stated it is no longer open to doubt that the liberty of the press and of speech is within the liberty safeguarded by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment from invasion by state action. The Religion Clauses were likewise deemed applicable to the states in the 20th century. In Cantwell v. Connecticut, the court held that the fundamental concept of liberty embodied in the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment embraces the liberties guaranteed by the First Amendment. It continued, The First Amendment declares that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The 14th Amendment has rendered the legislatures of the states as incompetent as Congress to enact such laws. However, because Cantwell did not involve the Establishment Clause, the case of Everson versus Board of Education, decided seven years later, is generally considered authority for the proposition that the Establishment Clause applies with equal force to the states as to the federal government. There is one United States Supreme Court justice 
who has expressed the opinion that the Establishment Clause is not incorporated against the states. Justice Thomas has argued that unlike the Free Exercise Clause, which protects an individual right, the text and history of the Establishment Clause strongly suggest that it is a federalism provision intended to prevent Congress from interfering with state establishments. Under Thomas's view, states could establish a religion or, at the very least, the actions of states regarding establishment could be analyzed with less rigor. The vast majority of First Amendment practitioners and scholars, as well as judges, consider the Establishment Clause to be applicable to the states and their subdivisions. The Firstness of the First Amendment It is often argued that the First Amendment contains the first freedoms and were so highly valued by the framers of the Constitution that they were placed first. However, the history is a bit more nuanced. Consider the original Articles of Amendment to the Constitution. Congress of the United States begun and held at the city of New York on Wednesday, the 4th of March, 1789. Articles in addition to an amendment of the Constitution of the United States of America proposed by Congress and ratified by the legislatures of the several states pursuant to the fifth article of the original Constitution. Original amendments passed by Congress to be ratified by states. Article the First. After the first enumeration required by the first article of the Constitution, there shall be one representative for every 30,000, until the number shall amount to 100 after which the proportion shall be so regulated by Congress, that there shall be not less than 100 representatives, nor less than one representative for every 40,000 persons, until the number of representatives shall amount to 200, after which the proportion shall be so regulated by Congress." And there shall not be less than 200 representatives, nor more than one representative for every 50,000 persons. Article the Second. No law varying the compensation for the services of the senators and representatives shall take effect until an election of representatives shall have intervened. Article the Third. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Articles Amendments 1 and 2 are not ratified by the states. Thus, Article Amendment 3 becomes Article Amendment First, the current First Amendment. Note that the Article Amendment Two became the 27th Amendment in 1992. 
Nevertheless, the framers of the Constitution were undoubtedly influenced by the history of England and their own experiences regarding both speech and religion. In terms of speech and press, the licensing of publications and criminal prosecutions for sedition were important. In terms of religion, the violent history of religious conflicts in Great Britain and the rest of Europe were paramount, especially given that some of the states were colonies founded on religious motives. Theoretical Perspectives In addition to the usual theoretical perspectives governing constitutional interpretation, such as originalism and living constitutionalism, the First Amendment provokes some distinct theoretical perspectives. The absolutist perspective of the First Amendment gains credence from the language of the amendment. Congress shall make no law as compared to other restraints in the Bill of Rights, such as the Fourth Amendment's language of unreasonable searches and seizures. While this absolutist perspective has not prevailed, it is often evoked explicitly or implicitly in First Amendment arguments. The notion of free speech is often premised on a marketplace of ideas metaphor that appeared in early cases. This capitalist sentiment conceptualizes a free enterprise competition requiring little, if any, government regulation. Another influential view is that of Alexander Michael John, which envisions a more proactive view for government in ensuring democratic processes. This might mean that the government regulates abusive speech, for example, in the interest of democracy. Other views highlight an individualistic understanding of free speech, akin to other rights accorded to autonomous persons. However, no overarching theoretical perspective explains the disarray of free speech theories and doctrines, especially because the distinctions between theory and doctrine are often blurry. Even the question of whether expression qualifies as speech can be complicated. The categorization of types of expression, for example, political or commercial, is debated. Moreover, the exclusion of some types of speech, for example, obscenity, is also fraught. Concepts such as chilling speech or secondary effects waver between theory and doctrine. Similarly, the status of religion is not amenable to an overall theoretical perspective. In some senses, the two religion clauses are at odds if each is extended to its logical conclusion. The Establishment Clause, more accurately called the Anti-Establishment Clause, generally means that the government should not put its approval on religion. However, the Free Exercise Clause generally means that the government 
should accommodate religious beliefs. The issue is often when accommodation, especially of majority beliefs, becomes an establishment of religion objectionable to minority religious believers or non-believers. Additionally, protection of religious expression has been subject to legislative action. These protections have prompted several important and some controversial recent United States Supreme Court cases. The challenges of First Amendment cases and controversies. There are several challenges to any study of the First Amendment. First, many First Amendment cases, especially those involving speech and speech-related issues, evoke numerous doctrines. At times, the issue is what doctrine should apply. As Professor Julie Nice has explained, a typical dispute can involve many First Amendment doctrines, allowing the court to, quote, choose from among these various doctrines to frame and structure its analysis, unquote, with an eye towards the likely result. A second challenge is doctrinal incoherence even within distinct doctrines. This is not to say that there are not settled tests. There are. This makes the First Amendment a consistent choice for those drafting bar examination questions. Nevertheless, the court is often undermining its own previously announced tests. Third, the sheer number, the often extensive length and the regularity of fractured and closely divided opinions by the United States Supreme Court can make First Amendment study challenging. Until the First World War, the court devoted little attention to the First Amendment. But since then, it has decided more than 500 cases that discuss the First Amendment. Of course, not all of these cases are landmark cases or rest exclusively on First Amendment grounds. Nevertheless, there is much material. Fourth and finally, other federal courts as well as state courts routinely decide First Amendment cases, many of which are groundbreaking or involve cutting-edge and unresolved questions of law. Conduct, Content, and Categories Speech must be distinguished from mere conduct, although the First Amendment certainly protects expressive conduct and symbolic speech, which are subject to definitional disputes. The content of speech may place it in various categories of speech, some more protected and some less protected, as seen by the levels of scrutiny. The content of speech may also exclude it from protection under the First Amendment. The conflict between free speech and equality is a persistent one. Threats In Watts v. United States, the court upheld the constitutionality of the Threats Against the President statute in a brief per curiam opinion. However, the court concluded that a threat under the statute 
must be distinguished from what is constitutionally protected speech. As the court described it, quote, according to an investigator for the Army Counterintelligence Corps who was present, Petitioner Watts responded, they always holler at us to get an education. And now I have already received my draft classification as 1-A. And I've got to report for my physical this Monday coming. I am not going. If they ever make me carry a rifle, the first man I want to get in my sights is LBJ. They are not going to make me kill my black brothers. End quote. The jury found that petitioner had committed a felony by knowingly and willfully threatening the president. A divided court of appeals for the D.C. Circuit affirmed. The court concluded, quote, Whatever the willfulness requirement implies, the statute initially requires the government to prove a true threat. We do not believe that the kind of political hyperbole indulged in by petitioner fits within that statutory term. In the years since Watts, whether statements are hyperbole or true threats has become an issue in electronic and social media communications. In Elanis v. United States, the court considered statements and lyrics in Facebook postings in the context of a domestic violence situation. Elanis was convicted and the court granted review focusing on the First Amendment and pointed to a split in the circuits regarding an application of Virginia versus Black to a conviction of threatening another person. Did it require proof of the defendant's subjective intent to threaten or whether it is enough to show that a reasonable person would regard the statement as threatening? However, the court's order granting review instructed, quote, in addition to the question presented by the petition, the parties are directed to brief and argue the following question. Whether as a matter of statutory interpretation, conviction of threatening another person under the law requires proof of the defendant's subjective intent to threaten, end quote. Given the court's instruction, not surprisingly, the court's opinion, authored by Chief Justice Roberts, sidestepped the First Amendment issue. It held that, as a matter of statutory interpretation, the instructions to the jury at trial that guilt could be predicated on a reasonable person standard merited reversal. The court added, quote, Given our disposition, it is not necessary to consider any First Amendment issues. End quote. Status of the Press Considering interpretations of the Free Press Clause of the First Amendment, that is, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, an essential query is whether infringements on the press are analyzed in a different manner than infringements on freedom of speech, or, as some argue, has press been subsumed into speech for purposes of First Amendment doctrine. 
The notion of censorship is most akin to the doctrine of prior restraint, which, as the term applies, is when the government acts to prevent speech before it can occur. In the context of the press, this is a pre-publication injunction or criminalization rather than post-publication damages. The doctrine of prior restraint is not limited to the press, but appears in speech cases as well. The doctrine of prior restraint, when it involves the press, need not involve the government or government officials. The court has struggled to balance the freedom of the press against rights of criminal defendants and civil litigants, as well as considering whether the press should have a right of access to information or should be protected in its news-gathering activities. Public Proceedings In Fractured Opinions in Richmond Newspapers, Inc. v. Virginia, the court was nevertheless clear that there is a right of the public and press to attend criminal trials. But this raises questions about whether or not particular criminal proceedings or particular civil proceedings are included in the definition of trial. Whether or not a particular proceeding qualifies as public is often analyzed with resort to the complementary factors of experience, whether the public has historically been granted access to the place or processes and logic, whether access enhances the functioning of the particular process in question, as derived from the press enterprise cases. In Press Enterprise Company v. Superior Court of California for Riverside County, this is Press Enterprise 1, the court held voir dire examinations in criminal jury trials should generally be public. In Press Enterprise Company v. Superior Court of California for Riverside County in 1986, this is Press Enterprise 2, the court held that preliminary hearings in criminal trials should generally be public. Are executions public proceedings? Considering this issue, a district judge in Oklahoma applied the press enterprise cases and found that while there were many public executions and hangings, the trend since 1915 has been to have such events occur within the prison. Unlawful information. Members of the press routinely use statutory or regulatory provisions such as the Federal Freedom of Information Act and its state counterparts to obtain public information. They also use other means, including the receipt of anonymous information, which may have been gathered through unlawful means. In Bartnicki v. Vopper, the court held that a statutory wiretapping prohibition could not be constitutionally applied to a radio host who played a tape of an intercepted conversation on his radio show. The host received the tape anonymously, but had reason to know that the conversation had been illegally intercepted. 
Title III of the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968, as amended, generally prohibited the interception of wire, electronic, and oral communications. Title 18 U.S.C. Section 2511 applies to the person who willfully intercepts such communications and subsection C to any person who knowingly or having reason to know that the communication was obtained through an illegal interception willfully discloses its contents. The court's opinion, authored by Justice Stevens, stated, quote, The government identifies two interests served by the statute. First, interest in removing an incentive for parties to intercept private conversations. And second, the interest in minimizing the harm to persons whose conversations have been illegally intercepted. We assume that those interests adequately justify the prohibition in the law against the interceptor's own use of information that he or she acquired by violating the law. But it by no means follows that punishing disclosures of lawfully obtained information of public interest by one not involved in the initial illegality is an acceptable means of serving those ends. The court considered the first interest not served by prohibiting third parties from disclosing the information, but took the second interest more seriously. The court concluded, however, that in this case, involving a conversation between members of a teacher's union in negotiations and a possible strike, an application of the anti-wiretap statute, quote, implicates the core purposes of the First Amendment because it imposes sanctions on the publication of truthful information of public concern, unquote. Stevens concluded, quote, The months of negotiations over the proper level of compensation for teachers at the Wyoming Valley West High School were unquestionably a matter of public concern, and respondents were clearly engaged in debate about that concern. That debate may be more mundane than the communist rhetoric that inspired Justice Brandeis' classic opinion in Whitney versus California, but it is no less worthy of constitutional protection. Thus, privacy concerns gave way when balanced against the interest in publishing matters of public importance. Taxation of the Press Taxing the press, especially as a means of regulation, restraint, and control of speech, rather than the raising of revenue, has roots in English acts, and was arguably disfavored by the framers of the First Amendment. The general key in these cases is not that the press or media is subject to tax, but that this tax is somehow discriminatory or aimed at their speech. The United States Supreme Court's most famous press taxing case is Grosjean versus American Press Company, in which a unanimous court held unconstitutional a Louisiana statute taxing at 2% of 
of gross receipts, all publications with a circulation of over 20,000 copies per week. While the court discussed the history of taxing the press and waxed eloquent on press freedom, and some of this language is quoted in subsequent cases, the court found the form of the tax suspicious. What is not apparent from the published opinion, but is well documented in the briefs and other discussions of the case, is that the tax was passed with the encouragement of Governor Huey Long, known as the King Fisher, and that the larger media outlets in the state who were being subject to the tax were opposed to the governor. In Minneapolis Star and Tribune Company versus Minnesota, the court held unconstitutional a use tax on the cost of paper and ink products consumed in the production of such a publication, exempting the first $100,000 worth of paper and ink consumed in any calendar year. Although there was no indication of a bad motive, as in gross gene, Minnesota's singling out the press for special treatment with a tax that was not structured similar to any other state tax suggested that the goal of the tax is not unrelated to suppression of expression, and such goal is presumptively unconstitutional. In Arkansas Writers Project, Inc. versus Ragland, the court held unconstitutional a tax scheme that taxed general interest magazines, but exempted newspapers and religious, professional, trade, and sports journals. Again, there was no gross gene bad motive, but the court applied strict scrutiny, finding there was content discrimination. However, in Leathers versus Medlock, the court upheld the Arkansas taxing scheme that exempted print media from sales tax, but did not exempt cable television. The court held that although cable television, which provides news, information, and entertainment to its subscribers, is engaged in speech and is part of the press in much of its operation, the fact that it is taxed differently from other media does not by itself raise First Amendment concerns. Here, the court found it important that there was no evidence of censorship intended and there was no discrimination based on content. Discrimination based on speakers without more did not merit strict scrutiny. Defamation In Dunn and Brad Street, Inc. versus Green Moss Builders, Inc., the court refused to extend its precedent to a non-media defendant in a matter not of public concern. The facts, as explained in the court's plurality opinion, authored by Justice Powell and joined by Justices Rehnquist and O'Connor, were these. Quote, Petitioner Dunn and Bradstreet, a credit reporting agency, provides subscribers with financial and related information about businesses. All the information is confidential. 
under the terms of the subscription agreement, the subscribers may not reveal it to anyone else. On July 26, 1976, petitioners sent a report to five subscribers indicating that respondent, a construction contractor, had filed a voluntary petition for bankruptcy. This report was false and grossly misrepresented respondents' assets and liabilities. That same day, while discussing the possibility of future financing with its bank, respondents' president was told that the bank had received the defamatory report. He immediately called petitioner's regional office, explaining the error, and asked for a correction. In addition, he requested the names of the firms that had received the false report in order to assure them that the company was solvent. Petitioner promised to look into the matter but refused to divulge the names of those who had received the report. After determining that its report was indeed false, Petitioner issued a corrective notice on or about August 3, 1976, to the five subscribers who had received the initial report. The notice stated that one of Respondent's former employees, not Respondent itself, had filed for bankruptcy and that Respondent continued in business as usual. Respondent told Petitioner that it was dissatisfied with the notice, and it again asked for a list of subscribers who had seen the initial report. Again, Petitioner refused to divulge their names. Respondent then brought this defamation action in Vermont State Court. It alleged that the false report had injured its reputation and sought both compensatory and punitive damages. The trial established that the error in petitioner's report had been caused when one of its employees, a 17-year-old high school student paid to review Vermont bankruptcy pleadings, had inadvertently attributed to respondent a bankruptcy petition filed by one of respondent's former employees. Although petitioner's representative testified that it was routine practice to check the accuracy of such reports with the businesses themselves, it did not try to verify the information about respondent before reporting it. End quote. The court held that actual malice, the standard derived from New York Times versus Sullivan, was not applicable and concluded that damages, even presumed damages or punitive damages, were permissible. It declined to constitutionalize the entire common law of libel. Thus, one might say that Dunn and Bradstreet marks the limit to the court's First Amendment shaping of defamation. Bloggers in Obsidian versus Cox, the Ninth Circuit agreed with other circuits that, quote, the protections of the First Amendment do not turn on whether the defendant was a trained journalist, formerly affiliated with traditional news entities, engaged in conflict of interest disclosure, 
went beyond just assembling others' writings or tried to get both sides of a story. As the Supreme Court has accurately warned, a First Amendment distinction between the institutional press and other speakers is unworkable. With the advent of the Internet and the decline of print and broadcast media, the line between the media and others who wish to comment on political and social issues becomes far more blurred. In defamation cases, the public figure status of a plaintiff and the public importance of the statement at issue to the identity of the speaker provide the First Amendment touchstones. Yet the facts in Obsidian might be troubling to some. Quote, Kevin Patrick is a principal of Obsidian Finance Group, LLC, a firm that provides advice to financially distressed businesses. In December 2008, Summit Accommodators, Inc. retained Obsidian in connection with a contemplated bankruptcy. After Summit filed for reorganization, the bankruptcy court appointed Patrick as the Chapter 11 trustee. Because Summit had misappropriated funds from clients, Padrick's principal task was to marshal the firm's assets for the benefit of those clients. After Padrick's appointment, Crystal Cox published blog posts on several websites that she created, accusing Padrick and Obsidian of fraud, corruption, money laundering, and other illegal activities in connection with the summit bankruptcy. Cox apparently has a history of making similar allegations and seeking payoffs in exchange for retraction. Patrick and Obsidian sent Cox a cease and desist letter, but she continued posting allegations. This defamation suit ensued. Government as employer and educator. The following considers applications of the First Amendment's speech clause when the government is not acting as a general sovereign, but is acting as an employer or educator. The basic question in such instances is the extent to which the First Amendment doctrine that generally applies should also apply to the employment and educational contexts. The doctrine plows a middle ground. The courts have rejected the antiquated notion that public employment or education is a privilege that requires the abandonment of constitutional rights. The courts have also rejected the notion that employees and students retain the same First Amendment rights at work and school as they do outside these contexts. The Politics of Public Employment The First Amendment rights of public employees to engage in political speech and campaigning is in tension with the interest in a government that is not exclusively partisan and in which public employment positions are attributable to political patronage. In Rutan versus Republican Party of Illinois, the governor of Illinois had issued an executive order instituting a hiring freeze 
absent the governor's express permission. The governor then allegedly used that permission to operate a patronage system in that Republican Party members were routinely hired, allowed to transfer or promoted, while non-Republican Party members were not. Writing for the court, Justice Brennan began his opinion, quote, Today we are asked to decide the constitutionality of several related political patronage practices. Whether promotion, transfer, recall, and hiring decisions involving low-level public employees may be constitutionally based on party affiliation and support. We hold that they may not. End quote. The dissenting opinion authored by Justice Scalia and joined by Chief Justice Rehnquist, as well as Justices Kennedy and, in part, O'Connor, began, quote, Today the court establishes the constitutional principle that party membership is not a permissible factor in the dispensation of government jobs, except those jobs for the performance of which party affiliation is an appropriate requirement. It is hard to say precisely or even generally what that exception means, but if there is any category of jobs for whose performance party affiliation is not an appropriate requirement, it is the job of being a judge where partisanship is not only unneeded, but positively undesirable. It is, however, rare that a federal administration of one party will appoint a judge from another party. And it has always been rare. Thus, the new principle that the court today announces will be enforced by a corps of judges, the members of this court included, who overwhelmingly owe their office to its violation. Something must be wrong here, and I suggest it is the court. Protecting Public Employee Speech In Cassian versus Board of Regents of the University of State of New York, the court held unconstitutional a loyalty oath that was a prerequisite of continued state university employment. Each plaintiff had refused to sign a Feinberg certificate that he was not a communist and that if he had ever been a communist, he had communicated the fact to the president of the State University of New York. Writing for the court, Justice Brennan opined, quote, Our nation is deeply committed to safeguarding academic freedom, which is of transcendent value to all of us and not merely to the teachers concerned. That freedom is therefore a special concern of the First Amendment, which does not tolerate laws that cast a pall of orthodoxy over the classroom. The vigilant protection of constitutional freedoms is no more vital than in the community of American schools. The nation's future depends on leaders trained through wide exposure to that robust exchange of ideas which discovers truth out of a multitude of tongues rather than through any kind of authoritative selection. Unconstitutional Conditions and Compelled Speech 
The following considers two separate doctrines, unconstitutional conditions and compelled or coerced speech. Unconstitutional conditions and speech. The doctrine of unconstitutional conditions is not limited to the First Amendment. It can arise whenever the government attaches conditions to funding if those conditions affect the exercise of a constitutional right. For example, if the government requires a person to be sterilized before she could collect unemployment benefits, this would be an example of unconstitutional conditions. When the federal government is involved, doctrine under the spending clause, that is Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1, is implicated. When state or local governments are involved, there may be state constitutional issues. There are two opposing views of the doctrine of unconstitutional conditions. The most expansive view is that the government cannot impose a condition on funding unless it could impose that condition directly. In other words, the government could mandate sterilization as a condition for unemployment benefits if it could mandate sterilization generally. The most restrictive view is that the government can impose any condition on funding. In other words, the doctrine of unconstitutional conditions does not exist. The government can subsidize whatever it chooses, and people are free to take the money or to refuse it. When freedom of speech is the constitutional right at stake in an unconstitutional conditions case, the issue is further complicated by questions of whether the government itself is attempting to speak and whether there are other constitutional considerations. Forums, time, place, manner, government speech. The following considers the doctrines of public forums as opposed to private property and time, place, or manner as opposed to content. These doctrines, which often intersect, have developed to govern situations in which the government is regulating speech in a variety of contexts including protests, leafletting, state-sponsored groups, and the particularly vexing problem of signs. The possibility of government speaking rather than regulating operates as an escape clause to these doctrines. Public and Other Forums The court in Perry identifies three types of public fora. Traditional public forums, designated forums, and non-public forums. Along with an additional category that might be called a non-forum, or not a forum. These are the fora in current First Amendment doctrine. The forum analysis involves two separate steps. First, define the forum and then apply that definition to any set of facts. Second, articulate the standard for that forum and apply that standard to the facts. Trespassing in a public forum. In Virginia versus Hicks, 
Justice Scalia wrote for a unanimous court and upheld the constitutionality of a housing authority's trespass policy. As the court explained, quote, The Richmond Redevelopment and Housing Authority, RRHA, owns and operates a housing development for low-income residents called Wickham Court. The RRHA posted red and white signs on each apartment building and every 100 feet along the streets of Whitcomb Court stating, No trespassing. Private property. You are now entering private property and streets owned by RRHA. Unauthorized persons will be subject to arrest and prosecution. Unauthorized vehicles will be towed at owner's expense. The RRHA also enacted a policy authorizing the Richmond police to serve notice, either orally or in writing, to any person who is found on Richmond Development and Housing Authority property when such person is not a resident, employee, or such person cannot demonstrate a legitimate business or social purpose for being on the premises. Such notice shall forbid the person from returning to the property. Finally, Richmond Redevelopment and Housing Authority authorizes Richmond Police Department officers to arrest any person for trespassing after such person, having been duly notified, either stays upon or returns to Richmond Redevelopment and Housing Authority property. End quote. Respondent Kevin Hicks, a non-resident of Wickham Court, received a notice from the manager excluding him from the property. He was later convicted for trespassing at Whitcomb Court. At trial, Hicks maintained that the RRHA's policy limiting access to Whitcomb Court was both unconstitutionally overbroad and void for vagueness. The court concluded, quote, Even assuming the streets of Whitcomb Court are a public forum, the notice barment rule subjects to arrest those who re-enter after trespassing and after being warned not to return, regardless of whether, upon their return, they seek to engage in speech. Neither the basis for the barment sanction, the prior trespass, nor its purpose, preventing future trespasses, has anything to do with the First Amendment. Punishing its violation by a person who wishes to engage in free speech no more implicates the First Amendment than would the punishment of a person who has, pursuant to lawful regulation, been banned from a public park after vandalizing it, and who ignores the ban in order to take part in a political demonstration. Here, as there, it is Hicks's non-expressive conduct his entry in violation of the notice barment rule, not his speech for which he is punished as a trespasser. Most importantly, both the notice barment rule and the legitimate business or social purpose rule apply to all persons who enter the streets of Whitcomb Court, not just to those who seek to engage in expression. The rules apply to strollers, loiters, drug dealers, roller skaters, bird watchers, soccer players, and others not engaged in constitutionally protected conduct. 
a group that would seemingly far outnumber First Amendment speakers. The court further noted that, quote, Rarely, if ever, will an overbreadth challenge succeed against a law or regulation that is not specifically addressed to speech or to conduct necessarily associated with speech, such as picketing or demonstrating. Applications of the RRHA policy that violate the First Amendment can still be remedied through as-applied litigation. But the Virginia Supreme Court should not have used the strong medicine of overbreath to invalidate the entire RRHA trespass policy. End quote. Time, place, or manner. Government regulation that is not directed at content or viewpoint may be merely a time, place, or manner restriction subject to a more lenient level of judicial scrutiny. The government practice of establishing designated protest areas or free speech zones is generally analyzed as a time, place, or manner restriction. In Snyder v. Phelps, the court considered a jury verdict against Fred Phelps, certain members of his family, and his organization, the Westboro Baptist Church, for intentional infliction of emotional distress on behalf of Albert Snyder, the father of Marine Lance Corporal Matthew Snyder. The Westboro Baptist Church has become well known for its picketing of various funerals, including those of soldiers. On the day of the memorial service for Snyder, the Westboro congregation members picketed on public land adjacent to public streets near the Maryland State House, the United States Naval Academy, and Matthew Snyder's funeral. The Westboro picketers carried signs that were largely the same at all three locations. In an opinion by Chief Justice Roberts, the court found that picketing was protected by the First Amendment and damages awarded precluded. The court stated, quote, Westboro conducted its picketing peacefully on matters of public concern at a public place adjacent to a public street. Such space occupies a special position in terms of First Amendment protection. We have repeatedly referred to public streets as an archetype of a traditional public forum, noting that time out of mind, public streets and sidewalks have been used for public assembly and debate. However, the court noted, quote, Westboro's choice of where and when to conduct its picketing is not beyond the government's regulatory reach. It is subject to reasonable time, place, or manner restrictions that are consistent with the standards announced in this court's precedence. Maryland now has a law imposing restrictions on funeral picketing, as do 43 other states and the federal government. To the extent these laws are content-neutral, they raise very different questions from the tort verdict at issue in this case. 
Maryland's law, however, was not in effect at the time of the events at issue here. So we have no occasion to consider how it might apply to facts such as those before us, or whether it or other similar regulations are constitutional. End quote. The political process. The following considers election and campaign finance cases, including the right to be anonymous, campaign finance, and judicial elections. Anonymity and public life. Some of the court's major anonymity cases are Talley v. California, Brown v. Socialist Workers' Party, and Buckley v. American Constitutional Law Foundation, or ACLF. In ACLF, the court found a Colorado provision requiring people circulating ballot petitions to wear identification badges unconstitutional under the First Amendment. In Caperton v. A.T. Massey Coal Company, the court held that the extreme facts of the case an outsized campaign contribution to a West Virginia state Supreme Court judge by a party subsequently appearing before the court created the probability of bias meriting recusal as a matter of due process under the 14th Amendment. The decision was closely divided, but interestingly, Justice Kennedy, writing for the court, and Chief Justice Roberts, authoring the primary dissent, The outcomes of these cases seem to point to the court's willingness to uphold judicial integrity, but the positions of some justices seem internally inconsistent. Campaign Finance Understanding First Amendment challenges to campaign finance laws can be difficult. The underlying statutory and regulatory schemes are themselves complex. Additionally, the approximately 20 campaign finance cases decided by the United States Supreme Court tend to be lengthy and closely divided with fractured opinions. Buckley v. Vallejo, the first major campaign finance case, occupies almost 300 pages in the United States reports. Approximately one-third is the court's per curiam opinion. One-third, the appendix consisting of the Federal Election Campaign Act under review, and one-third consists of various opinions concurring and dissenting in part. The court's opinion in McConnell v. Federal Election Commission in 2003, considering First Amendment challenges, to the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2002 is likewise almost 300 pages in the United States reports with a number of opinions. In Buckley v. Vallejo, the court considered a First Amendment challenge to the Federal Election Campaign Act, the FECA, which the per curiam opinion described thus, quote, The intricate statutory scheme adopted by Congress to regulate federal election campaigns includes restrictions on political contributions and expenditures that apply broadly to all phases of and all participants in 
the election process. The major contribution and expenditure limitations in the Act prohibit individuals from contributing more than $25,000 in a single year or more than $1,000 to any single candidate for an election campaign and from spending more than $1,000 a year relative to a clearly identified candidate. Other provisions restrict a candidate's use of personal and family resources in his campaign and limit the overall amount that can be spent by a candidate in campaigning for federal office. The court equated money to pure political speech. The per curiam opinion rejected the relevancy of United States versus O'Brien, stating, quote, The expenditure of money simply cannot be equated with such conduct as destruction of a draft card. Some forms of communication made possible by the giving and spending of money involve speech alone. Some involve conduct primarily, and some involve a combination of the two. Yet this court has never suggested that the dependence of a communication on the expenditure of money operates itself to introduce a non-speech element or to reduce the exacting scrutiny required by the First Amendment. It also rejected the applicability of the time, place, or manner doctrine. Quote, The critical difference between this case and those time, place, and manner cases is that the present act's contribution and expenditure limitations impose direct quantity restrictions on political communication and association by persons, groups, candidates, and political parties, in addition to any reasonable time, place, and manner regulations otherwise imposed. A restriction on the amount of money a person or group can spend on political communication during a campaign necessarily reduces the quantity of expression by restricting the number of issues discussed, the depth of their exploration, and the size of the audience reached. This is because virtually every means of communicating ideas in today's mass society requires the expenditure of money. End quote. Thus, the court subjected FECA to exacting scrutiny. In doing so, it establishes a divide between contributions and expenditures. Quote, In sum, the provisions of the Act that impose a $1,000 limitation on contributions to a single candidate, a $5,000 limitation on contributions by a political committee to a single candidate, and a $25,000 limitation on total contributions by an individual during any calendar year, are constitutionally valid. These limitations, along with the disclosure provisions, constitute the Act's primary weapons against the reality or appearance of improper influence, stemming from the dependence of candidates on large campaign contributions. The contribution ceilings thus serve the basic governmental interest in safeguarding the integrity 
of the electoral process without directly impinging upon the rights of individual citizens and candidates to engage in political debate and discussion. By contrast, the First Amendment requires the invalidation of the Act's independent expenditure ceiling, its limitation on the candidate's expenditures from its own personal funds, and its ceilings on overall campaign expenditures. These provisions place substantial and direct restrictions on the ability of candidates, citizens, and associations to engage in protected political expression, restrictions that the First Amendment cannot tolerate. End quote. Dark Money, Anonymity, Disclosure, and Campaign Finance Soon after Citizens United, the Disclose Act, that is, the democracy is strengthened by casting light on Spending in Elections Act, was introduced in Congress. However, it is stalled. The act would mandate more disclosures regarding contributions. Many consider disclosure and so-called dark money as major issues, with some arguing that it has increased after Citizens United, and some arguing that foreign contributions have greatly increased. Interestingly, Chief Justice Roberts for the courts in McCutcheon suggests that disclosure would be one acceptable answer. Disclosure requirements burden speech, but unlike the aggregate limits, they do not impose a ceiling on speech. He also notes that modern technology facilitates wide disclosure. Quote, reports and databases are available on the FEC's website almost immediately after they are filed, supplemented by private entities such as OpenSecrets.org and FollowTheMoney.org. Unquote. But as Roberts also notes, at present, individuals can, for example, contribute unlimited amounts to 501c organizations, which are not required to publicly disclose their donors and adds that such organizations spend some $300 million on independent expenditures in the 2012 election cycle. This dark money is subject to IRS regulation regarding the tax-exempt nonprofit status of the 501c corporation, but IRS rulemaking has not been successful. Commercial Speech the following discusses the ascent of commercial speech from unprotected to arguably as fully protected as political speech. The Central Hudson Test and its Applications Under Central Hudson, there is a four-part test for whether governmental regulation of commercial speech is constitutional. First, the speech must concern lawful activity and the speech must not be misleading. Second, the alleged governmental interest must be substantial. Third, the regulation must directly advance the governmental interest. Fourth, 
the regulation must not be more extensive than is necessary to serve the interest. In Lorillard Tobacco Company versus Riley in 2001, a complex case regarding cigarette advertising regulations, the court reiterated the central Hudson four element test. Quote, At the outset, we must determine whether the expression is protected by the First Amendment. For commercial speech to come within that provision, it at least must concern lawful activity and not be misleading. Next, we ask whether the asserted governmental interest is substantial. If both inquiries yield positive answers, we must determine whether the regulation directly advances the governmental interest asserted, and whether it is not more extensive than is necessary to serve that interest. End quote. The quote adhered to the test, noting, quote, Petitioners urge us to reject the central Hudson analysis and apply strict scrutiny. They are not the first litigants to do so. Admittedly, several members of the court have expressed doubts about the central Hudson analysis and whether it should apply in particular cases. But here, as in greater New Orleans, we see no need to break new ground. Central Hudson, as applied in our more recent commercial speech cases, provides an adequate basis for decision. End quote. One argument for a rejection of the test is that there is or should be no category of commercial speech that deserves lesser protection in First Amendment doctrine. Defining religion. The following introduces the religion clauses of the First Amendment. The word religion appears in the First Amendment's religion clauses once, stating, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. The definition of religion raises the question whether protection for the same acts should vary depending upon their motivation. This difference is more clearly illustrated by the cases of two teenagers, Danielle and Ariana, who each wore facial jewelry to their respective schools. Both violated the school's dress code, both were disciplined, and both bought actions under the First Amendment. Danielle argued that her facial jewelry was expressive speech, conveying a message of nonconformity. Ariana contended that her facial jewelry was appropriate because she was a member of the Church of Body Modification. Danielle's claim under the First Amendment speech clause was rejected. In Bar-Navon v. Brevard County School Board, the 11th Circuit stated that even if Danielle's jewelry had satisfied the speech threshold, the school restriction would merely be subject to intermediate scrutiny, a standard the prohibition easily survived. The court noted that the dress code allowed Danielle adequate alternative methods of communication, 
She could communicate by talking, by engaging in active debate, or by wearing symbolic jewelry through ear piercings. Moreover, the school policy did not prohibit piercings. It only prohibited wearing jewelry through piercings, and it only applied while she was at school. Thus, Danielle had no First Amendment right to wear her facial jewelry to high school. In contrast, a federal judge accepted Ariana's claim under the First Amendment Free Exercise Clause in granting a motion for a temporary restraining order and Iacono versus Croom, the judge described the Church of Body modification as having approximately 3,500 members in the United States who, quote, practice ancient and modern body modification rituals, including piercing, scarring, tattooing, and suspensions, through which they strengthen the connection between their bodies, minds, and souls, end quote. The judge noted that Ariana had joined the church the month that the school had started, had her nose pierced, and now believe, according to the church's teachings, she must wear the nose stud at all times. With no analysis, the judge found that Ariana was likely to prevail on the free exercise of religion claim, and therefore restrained the school authorities from enforcing the dress code against Ariana as it pertained to her nose stud. The Establishment Clause and Education The Court and People of State of Illinois versus Board of Education held unconstitutional a scheme in which private religious groups were permitted to come weekly into the school buildings during the regular hours set apart for secular teaching and substitute their religious teaching for the secular education provided under the compulsory education law. The court's opinion concluded by stating that, quote, Here not only are the state's tax-supported public school buildings used for the dissemination of religious doctrines, the state also affords sectarian groups an invaluable aid in that it helps to provide pupils for their religious classes through the use of the state's compulsory public school machinery. This is not separation of church and state. End quote. This opinion was widely seen as anti-Catholic. A few years later, the courts declined to find McCollum versus Board of Education controlling when the religious instruction occurred outside of the school building. In Zorak versus Clausen in 1952, the court upheld the New York law allowing students to be released from school in order to go to religious centers for religious instruction or devotional exercises. In accordance with compulsory attendance laws, students not released stayed in the classrooms and received instruction. Religious authorities had to report to the schools the names of the children released from public schools who failed to report for religious instruction. Three justices dissented, each writing separate dissenting opinions. The court's opinion, written by Justice Douglas, concluded that the release program 
involved neither religious instruction in public schools nor the expenditure of public funds. Justice Douglas's opinion is most notable for the following passage. Quote, We are a religious people whose institutions presuppose a supreme being. We guarantee the freedom to worship as one chooses. We make room for as wide a variety of beliefs and creeds as the spiritual needs of man deem necessary. When the state encourages religious instruction or cooperates with religious authorities by adjusting the schedule of public events to sectarian needs, it follows the best of our traditions. For it then respects the religious nature of our people and accommodates the public service to their spiritual needs. To hold that it may not would be to find in the Constitution a requirement that the government show a callous indifference to religious groups. End quote. There are those who critique this passage from Douglas as being entirely self-serving and related to Douglas's contemplation of a presidential run and the Catholic vote. Freedom of Religious Exercise The following considers freedom of religion in the First Amendment and in statutory context. In Murphy v. Ramsey in 1885, the court, in an opinion by Justice Matthews, unanimously upheld a conviction barring voting for polygamists under the 1882 congressional statute that provided, quote, that no polygamist, bigamist, or any person cohabitating with more than one woman, and no woman cohabitating with any one of the persons described as aforesaid in this section, in any territory or other place over which the United States have exclusive jurisdiction, shall be entitled to vote at any election held in such territory or other place or be eligible for election or appointment to or to be entitled to hold any office or place of public trust, honor, or emolument in, under, or for any such territory or place or under the United States. The court stated that, quote, certainly no legislation can be supposed more wholesome and necessary in the founding of a free self-governing commonwealth, fit to take rank as one of the coordinate states of the Union, than that which seeks to establish it on the basis of the idea of the family, as consisting in and springing from the Union for life of one man and one woman, in the holy estate of matrimony, the sure foundation of all that is stable and noble in our civilization, the best guarantee of that reverent morality which is the source of all beneficent progress in social and political improvement. End quote. Relying on Murphy versus Ramsey and Reynolds versus United States, shortly thereafter, the United States Supreme Court upheld a prohibition of voting by believers in polygamy in Davis versus Beeson in 1890. Davis involved a requirement in the territory of Idaho 
that required persons wishing to vote take the following oath. Quote, I do swear or affirm that I am a male citizen of the United States of the age of 21 years or will be on the 6th day of November 1888 that I have or will have actually resided in this territory four months and in this county for 30 days. Next preceding the day of the next ensuing election that I've never been convicted of treason, felony, or bribery, that I am not registered or entitled to vote at any other place in this territory, and I do further swear that I am not a bigamist or polygamist, that I am not a member of any order, organization, or association which teaches, advises, counsels, or encourages its members, devotees, or any other person to commit the crime of bigamy or polygamy, or any other crime defined by law as a duty arising or resulting from membership in such order, organization, or association, or which practices bigamy, polygamy, or plural or celestial marriage as a doctrinal right of such organization, that I do not and will not publicly or privately or in any manner, whatever, teach, advise, counsel, or encourage any person to commit the crime of bigamy or polygamy or any other crime defined by law, either as a religious duty or otherwise, that I do regard the Constitution of the United States and the laws thereof and the laws of this territory as interpreted by the courts as the supreme laws of the land, the teachings of any order, organization, or association to the contrary notwithstanding. So help me God. End quote. Samuel Davis and others were prosecuted under the statute because, in truth, each of the defendants was a member of an order, organization, and association, namely, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, commonly known as the Mormon Church, which they knew taught, advised, counseled, and encouraged its members and devotees to commit the crimes of bigamy and polygamy as duties arising and resulting from membership in said order, organization, and association, and which order, organization, and association, as they all knew, practiced bigamy and polygamy, and plural and celestial marriage as doctrinal rights of said organization and that, in pursuance of said conspiracy, the said defendants went before the registrars of different precincts of the county, which are designated, and took and had administered to them respectively the oath aforesaid. End quote. Writing for a unanimous court, Justice Field reasoned, Bigamy and polygamy are crimes by the laws of all civilized and Christian countries. They are crimes by the laws of the United States. They are crimes by the laws of Idaho. They tend to destroy the purity of the marriage relation, to disturb the peace of families, to degrade women, and to debase man. Few crimes are more pernicious to the best interests of society and receive more general or more deserved punishment.
To extend exemption from punishment for such crimes would be to shock the moral judgment of the community, end quote. The remainder of the opinion discussed the power of the Territory of Idaho to pass the criminal statute in question, given that there was a federal statute. Prison litigation under the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, or R-L-U-I-P-A. Writing for a unanimous court in Cutter v. Wilkinson in 2005, Justice Ginsburg upheld the constitutionality of RLUIPA's Section 3, providing that, quote, no government shall impose a substantial burden on the religious exercise of a person residing in or confined to an institution, unless the burden furthers a compelling governmental interest and does so by the least restrictive means. End quote. The prison officials had argued that this provision on its face improperly advanced religion in violation of the First Amendment's Establishment Clause as impermissibly advancing religion by giving greater protection to religious rights than to other constitutionally protected rights. The court noted that religious accommodation in prison would be adjudicated with particular sensitivity to security concerns. In another unanimous opinion, the court in Holt v. Hobbs held that the Arkansas Department of Corrections grooming policy violated RLUIPA to the extent that it prohibited petitioner from growing a half-inch beard in accordance with his religious beliefs. Writing for the court, Justice Alito rejected the Department of Corrections beard ban as the least restrictive way of furthering prison safety and security, including hiding contraband, an argument that was hard to take seriously in the context of the half-inch beard, and concealing identities, an argument that suffered in comparison to other institutions and the Arkansas DOC's allowance of a quarter-inch beard and mustache. The court's rejection of the Arkansas DOC's argument as not meriting serious attention does raise the issue of the Eighth Circuit's and district judges' crediting of that argument in their rulings against the pro se prisoner. Additionally, Justice Ginsburg concurred separately to state, quote, Unlike the exemption this court approved in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby Stores, Inc., accommodating petitioner's religious belief in this case would not detrimentally affect others who do not share petitioner's belief. On that understanding, I join the court's opinion, end quote. The Play in the Joints Inlock v. Davey in 2004, the court upheld the constitutionality of the Washington State Promise Scholarship that excluded devotional theology from eligibility. Writing for a majority, Justice Rehnquist wrote that the Free Exercise Clause and Establishment Clause are frequently in tension 
but that there is play in the joints between the two clauses. The court held that the exemption was not hostility or targeting of religion under Church of Leukemia, but was consistent with the state's anti-establishment clause concerns. Importantly, Washington had a so-called Blaine Amendment in its state constitution, which prohibits government financial support of religion. Also importantly, the Promise Scholarship did include religion and religious studies, as well as students at religious schools. This is all I'd like to talk about for this section. Thanks, everybody, and take care.